Welcome to the Reading Room. This is Room 28. On this programme, the Reading Room Book Group reviews The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. It is that understanding of what it means to be human that is the moral and the point of the story at the end. And we talk to documentary maker and author Nick Gray. Little Tenzin, 11-year-old Tenzin, had a electric cattle prod shoved into his mouth and uh, he, he just went out cold. Hello, I'm John Osborne and you're listening to the Reading Room Podcast. And now it's time for the Reading Room Book Group with our regular reviewer, Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Paul. Good morning. Now, uh, a few months ago, Jill plonked a copy of The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce in my hand and said, see what you think of that. Now, the publishers, uh, they tell us that when Harold Fry leaves home one morning to post a letter with his wife hoovering upstairs, he has no idea that he's about to take a walk from one end of the country to the other. He has no hiking boots or map, let alone a compass, waterproof or mobile phone. All he knows is that he must keep walking to save someone else's life. Uh, now, before we go to Jill, find out what she thought of it, we're going to play the, the excerpt that really sets this up well. Uh, this features uh, early on in the book, and normally I read the passages, but this time we have someone uh, a little more distinguished, Jim Broadbent. That's the marmalade, Harold. Jam is red. If you look at things before you pick them up, you'll find it helps. Harold passed her what she needed and returned to his letter. Beautifully set out, of course. Nothing like the muddled writing on the envelope. Then he smiled. Remembering this was how it always was with Queenie. Everything she did so precise you couldn't fault it. She remembers you. She sends her regards. Maureen's mouth pinched into a bead. A chap on the radio was saying the French want our bread. They can't get it sliced in France. They come over here and they buy it all up. The chap said there might be a shortage by summer. She paused. Harold? Is something the matter? He said nothing. He drew himself up tall with his lips parted, his face bleached. His voice, when at last it came, was small and far away. It's cancer. Queenie is writing to say goodbye. He fumbled for more words, but there weren't any. Tugging a handkerchief from his trouser pocket, Harold blew his nose. That's uh, Jim Broadbent reading an excerpt from The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. So, Jill, how was your pilgrimage? I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. It's something that I knew from the beginning it was obviously going to be an emotive read. That's set up right from the beginning. Yeah. And um, I think it was. I enjoyed it very much. I think it was not probably one of the books that, um, it, it's not a, a big story, it's a story about small steps, start, starting small, small steps, and what is a small journey and a small man's issue that turns into a big journey for him and for everybody else at the end. It was, uh, yes, it was very satisfying, I thought. Yeah, Nicely cer- done. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I, I loved this from the start, and uh, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about how, how I read this. I read it with a bit of an interval, but we'll, we'll go into that a little bit later. But I thought that the, the characters and the characterisation were, were just absolutely superb. And um, also the feelings and emotion that, that, that come across from it, mm-hmm. they, they, they do so well. Now, uh, this is Rachel Joyce's first novel, but she's, she's written radio plays too, and I think that, that you can tell that, can't yes, you? Yes, yes, was, there was definitely a, what we've been saying, Radio 4 feel about it, wasn't there? Yeah. Just, because I thought there was, there's obviously there's a moral message, it's about people of a certain age, um, a little bit pompous maybe in places, 
it very much had almost a radio play feel to it. So yes, I could see that coming through. Yeah, but I think with the, the amount of characters that, that get across there, and we had this with uh, the woman who went to bed for a year, the mm. amount of characters coming in and out. Um, now, I, I felt that they, they were drawn pretty well, uh, but I, I don't think you, you did. I, I thought they were, but I thought the main character of Harold was drawn so in so much detail and he was very real. And I thought the other characters were n- not as three-dimensional. I thought they were more two-dimensional. And they were only drawn as, a ref- as they reflected him. Mm. Um, but that was because he was the centre character of the story. Maureen obviously was drawn. The wife was drawn in quite detail. But the lady who he is travelling to see, Queenie, and only right at the end of the book, which we won't give any spoilers away, but only right at the end of the book do we find anything about her internal life. It's it's all about his journey and about him, and I think that's I think that's how it should be. I think it was done as it should be, but I didn't think the other characters were as strong, no. Yeah, no, but I suppose I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think there's the time, mm. is there? There's no. not the time. If there's no. just a fleeting, it's a fleeting journey to go uh, from, I can't remember his hometown, but to, up to the up to Berwick-on-Tweed, mm. and... I, I think if you're just meeting these people, I, I thought I actually thought that was done very well. Yes. Just just because it, I engage with these people, you kind of got a bit about them, but you, you said goodbye to them very very soon. I think otherwise, if you and put too much detail in there, aren't you yes. in, in trouble of like missing characters yes. Yes, too I soon? Think you're probably right. But but also he was he was a big influence on all the people that he met. That was part of the point of his his journey and his pilgrimage I think that he was a huge benefit there's a lady that gives him a a cup of tea or drink of water or something like that quite near the beginning of the book and he actually makes a difference to her life by sitting and listening to her and he listens to all these people he engages with all the people he meets on a level that they probably haven't been engaged with for a long time and he changes all their lives in a little way that's why I think they are a reflection of him in that way of of, of what he's doing. And there's, I mean, there's the undercurrent all the way through it about the relationship mm. uh, with his son as well. Yes. But, but I suppose to set up the plot, uh, just just a touch, mm. is that um, we heard in the excerpt there that is uh, he, he goes to or wants to walk to Berry on Tweed to uh, what he believes save Queenie, someone he used to work with. Yes. Um, and uh, quite how he's going to do that, he doesn't know. No one knows, you know, how how that's going to happen. But just this simple pilgrimage of, of 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 walking there just it in his in his boating shoes and his yachting yes. shoes exactly yeah yeah and yes. he didn't really you know when he left he the house the that day box, and then he yeah. walks the next one then he walks the next one and as in many things in life it's the small steps that make the big differences mm. but I, do you know yeah. i found it yeah although it's an extraordinary story i think I've, i found it very believable in the way that i perhaps didn't with the woman who went to bed for a year that yes. we read you know there are very, there's some similarities to be had between this but harold is drawn in much more depth I yeah. think. Yeah. And he he's we were talking about the the pilgrimage part of it and he is in emotional pain for quite a lot of the way thinking about his past and things but he's also in an enormous amount of physical pain because he hasn't got the clothes he hasn't got the gear he hasn't got the shoes but he keeps going and it's you actually do feel with him every step of the way don't you almost literally yeah, yeah and it's uh, yeah you do absolutely and it says and there, there's good uh, uh, bits throughout it about the you know sort of a, taking care of his blisters and that kind of thing because he wears these yachting shoes um and I, I really engage with the character because this is exactly the kind of thing that i would do there are people along the journey that say well no you need these hiking boots you need you know your gore-tex jacket all that kind of thing <laughs> uh, and have to have the proper you know all the gear no idea people but yeah. um it's exactly the kind of thing i do i'm that stubborn that you know when people tell me i should have a sat nav 
I don't want a sat nav. You know, I've got a ripped up map, you know, in the, in the back of the car with yogurt stains on it. Yeah. And that'll do. Thank you very much. You know, although I now I find myself driving around yogurt stains. But it's, <laughs> but that's exactly yeah. the yes. kind of thing, you yes. know, it's a, and I really, he was really very endearing character. character. Yeah. Very endearing. Yeah. But as mm. as again, and I don't want to draw too many comparisons with The Woman Who Went to Bed for a Year because they're very different books. I mean, The Woman Who Went to Bed for a Year is a, 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 a comic novel, you know, really you know, yes. very lighthearted. However, as much as that wasn't, it was about a woman who went to bed for a year but as much as that it wasn't because it, it, it scratched the surface and, and it got to something more deeper in her psyche yes. this does as well and it's, it's generally about the relationship with his son there's lots of uh, reflection about uh, what appears to be a very awkward relationship with his son yes yes there is and the, the way he's he's moving through 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 England and through that it, it does develop all the way through but the book that's I made a connection with as well was the Jarvis handbook that we read mm-hmm. just the other week because yeah. the other thing that came over to me was that I thought it was very much a, a portrait of England novel as was that one it's um, he's driving through or walking through rather suburbs hedgerows bed and breakfast in in the same way that the Jarvis handbook was was looking at all the roads and the little cafes at the side again this was very much I thought a, a picture of of England as it is. Now it's time to hear from our email correspondent, Cathy. I absolutely loved this book. I found the story compelling from start to finish. The writing was so brilliantly done that I actually felt as if I was on Harold's pilgrimage with him. Harold's journey to save an old friend's life was the catalyst of unravelling both of his and his wife's past. The author expressed so well the pain and regret that had tormented them both for 20 years, with humour and great sensitivity drawing other characters in along the way. I found it extremely thought-provoking and beautifully illustrated. I would recommend this novel to anyone who enjoys a reflective but essentially uplifting look at life. And uh, I, I hear here, I second those words. Mm. Uh, thanks very much to uh, to Cathy and all the uh, email correspondents that she sent in. Um, the, the title, The un- Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, is uh, long and it sounds it's a bit mouthful. convoluted, doesn't it? Yeah, not easy to, to, yes. to talk about on, on the radio or a podcast even. Um, but... Every word is is essential there, isn't it, Jill? Especially mm. the pilgrimage word. Yes, I mean it's not just a long walk up country. It's no. it's a bit you know it, the fact that it is they're using the word pilgrimage and it does take Harold from this slightly bumbling middle aged character into something a little bit more elemental, really. His interactions with everybody that he encounters along the way, as we said earlier, he he changes people's lives. He changes the lives of of all all these people that he meets. Um, he's in in this his physical and emotional state as he walks along. But he has almost an ancient mariner character about him. He's impelled to tell his story to everybody that he meets, and that sort of makes it a little bit more than than realistic. It's that slightly other other side of it that makes it a little bit more lifts it a little bit above the ordinary and the whole thing becomes about what it means to be human and uh, the redemptive power of things like nature and um, confronting memory and confronting the past and it does become this rather larger story than just of a man walking yeah, yeah, it does. Mm. I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I can't recommend this enough. And the ending um, of this 
we're not going book. to talk about. We're we not going to. Well, yeah, exactly. As, as always, we're not going to give away any yeah. any plot yeah. spoilers, anything like that. However, I sometimes struggle with endings of books, especially ones I've enjoyed so much, just because I don't want it to end. Uh, however, I felt that this is one of the best endings I've read in a book. Full stop. I can't remember a better one. Uh, just in the emotion, um, the, the the severity of the story at the ending, and also, uh, I, I, I say their emotion. I mean, if you haven't got damp eyes at the end of this book, then you know you you need to be checking your pulse because it's yes. it's you know it's it's phenomenally written. I think it's it certainly has has a big impact because I didn't see. We're not going to say what the revelations no, no. of the are, are end are, but I didn't see it coming, and even the bit you did see coming, you don't you don't see the extent of it, and uh, it was very good. But have we got? Uh, yes, I've got time. I think just to this little par- this little passage here, very short passage, and it's about how old it says. It says the world was made up of the people putting one foot in front of another, and a life might appear ordinary simply because the person living it had done so for a long time. Harold could no longer pass a stranger without acknowledging the truth that everyone was the same and also unique and that this was the dilemma of being human. And it is that understanding of what it means to be human that is the, the moral and the point of the story at the end. Superb. So you're going to recommend this book, aren't I you, Jill? I would, yes. Good. And that's not, I'm not twisting your arm there. I mean, yeah, I would. I, I would. I, absolutely. And I know Cathy does. So there you go. Another shining light. If I had a bell, I would be ringing it. Um, <laughs> now, talking of endings there, as we did, uh, this is going to be uh, our last, as this is our last live programme here down at Siren on a Sunday morning. Um, but don't worry, the reading room will be carrying on. Um, we're going to just quickly look back at what our favourite books have been in our review section, in our book group, um, since we started. And I've been looking back over, over the list. Um, and I'll tell you mine in a minute. But Jill, what has been your favourite? Favourite book. Well, I think it's the hardest thing you've asked me to do for a long time. It before, is, actually. isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, there's the obvious things that would be my favourite book, like 1Q84, love Murakami, love all those things. But those are the things that I would have loved anyway. What mm-hmm. is give, What the book group's giving me um, is the books that I wouldn't have read that I felt were impressive. And I came up with a few. Oddly, the Jarvis Handbook, which is stay, is stays in your mind. Uh, Abigail Tartellan's flick. The Deborah Waring book, The Forever Today, that's something that I've thought about a lot afterwards. Yeah. Um, but The Bees by Caroline Duffy, I think, probably had to be my big favourite. I nearly because I, I will keep that on my shelf and I will that's one of the books that will travel with me I think well I nearly went for that for the cover uh, and now it's time we're going to bring in our, <laughs> our producer uh, Johnny Hall Johnny over the periods where we've been doing this what's been your your favourite well Jill mentioned the, the 1Q84 there and, and that's probably the one that had the biggest impact on me because unlike Jill I, I hadn't heard of Haruki Murakami I, I, and it's not a book I would ever have chosen to read we reviewed the books one and two as a trilogy on the show and uh, I read them afterwards and immediately went out and bought book three uh, since then I've, I've read Norwegian Wood which I've loved as well and I'm, I'm certainly going to read more Murakami now so that, that's a, an area I would never have gone down without the book group Good, good uh, so we've, we've served our purpose here And that's what here. book groups are for Exactly, exactly yeah, well, that, and that we was... will continue to be for Yeah, yeah as always always been the uh, the idea that we would uh, challenge ourselves and certainly me as picking a lot of the books uh, trying to, to, to go in various directions now I, I, I was trying not to be too obvious with it and I was looking at, uh, at Flick like you say by Abigail Tartelli and I thought it was absolutely superb complete page turner Driving Jarvis Ham yeah we've done it recently you, you might expect me to say One Day by David Nichols but hey again that was too <laughs> obvious and I think we're thinking exactly the yes, same here because yes. it's those things that we've been surprised by and pushed by um, and I th- I'm going to say 1Q84 as well just because I wouldn't I wouldn't have read that 
uh, normally it's I mean look at the size of it it's too big uh, you know I, I, I would look at that and find it difficult to carry around um, but this, this, that was my problem with 1Q84 just that it was too big you know it was a one book advert for uh, e-readers wasn't it you know but the the content that was in it is just it, it, for me it, it pushes um, how, how you should read and um, more publishers should take that, that risk and publish more things like this because they'll be out there uh, they're just not doing it I don't think and you know but then as we are we as readers all you know just uh, wanting the same Dan Browns and <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey I don't know we were talking about Fifty Shades we of Grey were, weren't yes. we yes and, and the, the phenomenal that can become well a phenomenon out of something that there's nothing wrong with it but it's not that special either yeah yeah but um, the, the more the literati start to yeah, uh, oppress yeah. it the more we're going to yeah. defend it and you know give everyone's the right of to do book it group, of, of the book group we've done here and of book groups in general is that it gives everybody a chance to meet something they would never meet that isn't up there on the top of shelves the ones that you're not going to see and i think we've all found things that we've that have changed our thoughts about the world, which is what it's meant to do. Exactly. So thank you very much, Jill, for coming down. Uh, and thanks for all your reviews and the times uh, that you've put into the programme as well. Thank you very much. The Reading Rooms, 101 books to read before you die. I'm John Mitchinson. I'm co-founder and publisher of Unbound. And the book I would add to the list is The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. It's a book I was fortunate enough to be in, in the position of publishing in its English translation in the UK. But it is the most wonderful, fantastical, but strangely realistic novel. If you've never read Murakami before, you'll be completely amazed by how brilliantly plotted it is, how strangely dreamy the landscape is. It's a vast book, but it's also incredibly compelling. I just feel everybody who loves crime thrillers, who loves jazz, who loves modern fiction, who's fascinated by modern culture, I think it's one of the great novels. Nick Gray is a television producer who's been making award-winning documentaries for over 30 years, and he's now an author. Escape from Tibet follows 11-year-old Tenzin attempts to flee Chinese repression of his homeland by taking the most dangerous escape route in the world, over the Himalayas, led by his fearless brother, Pasang. This emotional story traces the desperate challenges, hardships and setbacks of their remarkable journey. And I'm very pleased to say that Nick joins me now. Nick, welcome to The Reading Room. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. OK, now uh, we'll take a look at the uh, the book and the people involved in, in just a minute. But I don't want to take it for granted that everyone knows the history of the Chinese occupation in, in, in Tibet. I mean, for example, you know, I was aware of it. But obviously, since reading your book, I know there's, there's, there's much more to it. So if you could just give us a bit of background about that. Certainly. I mean, the way I've written the book, it's from the point of view of these two brothers. You see the whole thing through their eyes. And so what I have to be able to do in the book is to feed in the facts uh, the background facts to give the uh, the reader the idea of of what's going on, and uh, very soon in the first few pages you can get the impression that uh, they live under the the um, the heel of the Chinese government. Uh, they're treated as uh, Tibetans are treated as second class citizens. Uh, they can't um, be taught in Tibetan in their own schools. They get uh, second class jobs. And the only way that um, young Tibetans can get on in life is to actually uh, leave their country, to take the, the doubtful and difficult decision to go into exile. Now, your, your project started uh, and was indeed a most successful uh, documentary. Uh, and it's been shown for, in the White House, for example. Uh, so it's, it's reached far and wide. Uh, so when did you first become of the issues in Tibet? Well, I, I was in Leeds making documentaries uh, for Yorkshire Television 
and we made programs for ITV and for Channel 4 and Discovery Channel, National Geographic, and that sort of thing. But I was able to make one or two programs about uh, human rights issues. I, I made a program in Peru uh, where I uh, was helped by Amnesty International, and they told me at that time that um, I ought to try and do a film about uh, Tibet because that was the worst case of human rights abuse at the time. And so I tried to find a way of doing it, and it took me about three or four years to work out the, the best way of doing it because the difficulty is you can't, uh, as, a, as a journalist, as, um, as a film director, you can't go into Tibet and just uh, make a film because uh, uh, foreign journalists are, are banned. I, I couldn't have made that film uh, without uh, shooting it um, undercover, some of which we did, and uh, shooting it in other, in other countries because we followed the escape of the two brothers, uh, Tenzin and Pasang. We followed them over the Himalayas into Nepal and into India. And even in India and Nepal, we had to disguise what we were doing. We went in there with permission to make a film, but a film about Buddhism. But actually, we made a different film. I mean, if we went into Tibet to film, uh, to film people and showed their faces on television in the West, they would have been probably imprisoned, certainly tortured, as everybody is in prison in, uh, in Tibet, uh, or forced into exile, and even executed. And actually, even travel agents who have um, quite innocently helped uh, Western journalists who have gone in undercover, they have been punished for cooperating with, with Western journalists, not even knowing that uh, that's the case. Anyway, so I got uh, interested in doing this film, and I, I, I made the film. And it was, uh, uh, to my great uh, surprise and delight, it was uh, an immediate success. And uh, it was shown all over the world. It was shown in uh, uh, 40 countries and um, won a slew of awards, including an award for the Mountain Film Festival, the Mountain Film Festival in Banff. And they wanted to give it a special award. It's usually they, make, uh, they give awards to mountaineering films, but uh, they recognized that... Um, uh, to make this film 20,000 feet up in the Himalayas was, was quite an achievement. So they gave it a special award as the best political program above 6,000 meters. <laughs> so anyway, we, so we made that film, uh, made the film, and then what happened was that um, these, these two brothers who we followed, and uh, we followed a group of refugees, but they, they were the standout characters, because really because... Uh, Tenzin was only 11 years old at the time. He was just a child. And he had to undergo this horrific uh, journey over the mountains. But he was also, they were both captured by Chinese border guards. Uh, they were tortured by them. Little Tenzin, 11-year-old Tenzin, had a electric uh, cattle prod shoved into his mouth by by one of the, the um, border guards. And uh, he, he just went out cold. Uh, he lost consciousness, and um, and they were whipped and they were hit. You cannot believe it, but that that uh, happened uh, to them. Anyway, they were they were able to escape, and they were in a monastery in southern India where they'd both got places. And in fact, uh, Pasang became a a monk, and uh, Tenzin was studying as a as a novice. And they were learning English among other things. But as a result of the film, a lot of people wrote to the the two brothers. Uh, they they kept up a good correspondence, and I I kept um, contact with them. I went to see them in the in the monastery, and uh, and then two people, uh, very generous people, who uh, agreed to become their sponsors and to pay for them to come to England. And I went over there uh, a few years ago and uh, arranged for them to 
to come through to to England, um, which is actually quite a difficult thing to do. But um, I found um, I found somebody at the, uh, the High Commission in Delhi who was a Yorkshireman, and he helped me. I'm glad to say. Uh, so a Yorkshireman that dipped his hand in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> no, all he did was he said, uh, "You're from Yorkshire, okay? Well, I, I I might consider helping you." And he he, he got <laughs> us through. He got us through and got us on the plane. And they came to England uh, where they had places uh, which had been very kindly offered by King's College in London at the School of English to learn English. Uh, and they stayed there for two years. And since then, they've done uh, uh, they've done pretty well for themselves. Uh, they both uh, set themselves up in in London. Uh, one is uh, working in a supermarket in South London. The other is now a full-time student. But over the last few years, I've been hearing from them. I asked them about their escape and exactly what happened. And they told me much more than we were ever able to include in the film. So, in fact, the, the book um, which I produced is, is not really the book of the film. It's really the book of the, of the boys, uh, their background, um, and it's seen from their point of view. And... Um, uh, as the Dalai Lama himself is coming uh, uh, to England again, we hope to be able to present him uh, with a copy of the of the book. Uh, the Dalai Lama, who is the, the spiritual leader of uh, of the Buddhist religion uh, that the two brothers adhere to, and uh, we we hope that we will be able to present him with a with a copy of the book. Okay, and uh, I mean you, you've met the, the Dalai Lama as well, haven't you? You presented the uh, the DVD to him, and uh, I mean a lot of times there are forwards in books that you know maybe some people's colleagues have written, uh, you know, or, or some interested critics, but actually not many, I would say, have the forward and a recommendation from the Dalai Lama, have they? Uh, no, no. Um, I asked if uh, the office of the of the Dalai Lama, who is a, a living God, he's the living Buddha of compassion, uh, whether he would write a forward for the book. And he had seen the film, and um, he knew me. I'd met him a couple of times. Uh, he agreed to do a forward, a special forward for this book, and that's uh, included in the book, as well as uh, 50 photographs. Uh, there are screen grabs from the film, but also uh, I was able to go with uh, Tenzin to his home in northern Tibet uh, just a couple of years ago, and I took a lot of photographs there and met his mother and heard a lot more about the family, and I've been able to include all that in the book as well. Yeah, and those pictures do illustrate the, the story beautifully, but the the picture that stood out for me, uh, because I think it's perhaps some of the, the, the hardships that were there uh, throughout the journey, throughout the, their time in, in, in Tibet, the picture that stood out for me was the smile Miles just after their meeting with the Dalai Lama. I mean, you, you know, they, they, the picture tells a thousand words, doesn't it there? Yes, they have wonderfully expressive faces and actually laugh at danger. If something terribly sad is said, um, you, you can hear them laugh because that's, that's the way they react to things. But they both the boys have become uh, extremely important uh, friends to me and, uh, and to my wife. And uh, I see them sort of two, every two or three weeks and uh, uh, they're great fun to be with. You mentioned earlier on uh, certainly about the award about being so high up uh, in, in the Himalayas. So you've experienced yourself, um, you, you've experienced what, what they've, they've gone through over the, the escape over the, the Himalayas. Although, I don't know, to, to, to my untrained mind, I have a feeling that a, a TV crew and a camera crew have much more comfort than, than the people escaping, is that right? Oh yes, certainly. And in fact, whenever I show the film, people always ask me, um, were, were we able to help the, the group of uh, refugees as they came over the mountains. And, of course, we, we did, really, because they were so inadequately dressed. Uh, they had shoes that had, had fallen apart. Uh, little Tenzin was uh, suffering from snow blindness, uh, and uh, they were also starving. 
So, um, yes, chocolate was shared on occasion. Tenzin was able to use a, a pair of dark glasses. So we were able to, to help them to, to a certain extent, but, of course, we wanted to film what actually happened, so we didn't really want to influence what was actually happening to them in reality. Were they, were they wary of you? Were they wary of the TV and, and, and maybe the, the attention that that would bring them? Uh, yes, so to start with, uh, we, we, had, we had a letter from uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama which said, you know, do cooperate with these people. But in fact, some of them decided not to. So we only filmed uh, those who, um, who, who would agree to be filmed. And we had to be very discreet when we followed them. We, um, and we were able to stay in the villages, and they were, they were unable to do that because uh, they might excite the interest of the, of the police. So uh, it was a, a game of sort of cat and mouse, keeping up with them. Um, but we, we had to be very careful. But in fact, Tenzin comes from a part of, uh, uh, well, the, the boys come from a part of Tibet where uh, they don't actually see films or anything like that. And he actually had no idea he was being filmed. He, he knew that there were Westerners uh, who were sort of interested and they would come along occasionally and, and, and talk to them. Uh, but he didn't know that the uh, the, the thing that the uh, the cameraman Mike was holding was in fact a camera. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he got to India uh, a, a few months later, there there arrived in his monastery a, a bootleg copy of the film that had been uh, smuggled out of. Um, well, it, it had come from England, I think, and then it had come through to uh, uh, to India. And he saw himself on film, and he was absolutely staggered. He couldn't believe it. And, of course, for a documentary maker, uh, he's, he's the best kind of subject. He's the subject who doesn't know he's being filmed because he didn't know about film. Well, let's look at, at, turning, at turning that in, into a book. Is this your first book you, you've written? Or, and, and if so, then does uh, you know, writing for television help that, or, or does it perhaps get in the way of it? Well, that's a very good question, and it's the sort of question I would have expected uh, in the reading room. Because uh, when, I, when you write documentaries, you want the pictures to tell the story. So when you write the commentary, the commentary has to be very thin, very fine. You don't use adjectives. You don't describe what you see. And uh, in a book, those are all the things you have to use. You have to describe everything. You describe not only what you see, but what you smell, uh, what you hear. And, of course, that, that's all on offer uh, in a film. So uh, it's an entirely different discipline. Let's look at uh, your career as a, as a, as a documentary and, and, and television producer. Um, and let's look back. I'm very, very interested in, in Jimmy's set in St. James's in, in Hospital. It's been sort of said that that's the original docu-soap. I mean, do, do you, uh, are you happy with that mantle? Do you, are you carrying a bit of a can there, do you think? Well, I'm not responsible for all the, um, <laughs> the docu-soaps that uh, followed. But, um, no, when we, when we made uh, Jimmy's, it was a very, very exciting time. We were sort of trying something new. We had no no commentary for that, and we had no interviews. And, you, and the audience just had to follow uh, what was happening from the dialogue and from the action. And they did. And they, um, I was I was told by several people in television that it would never work because the audience have to be told uh, what's happening. But in fact, the audience is uh, extremely clever and picked it up immediately. And we we went on to to make I think it was 160 episodes and uh, it um, achieved uh, audiences of up to 10 million. And um, so I'm I'm actually very very proud of it. I I wanted to move on to other things, which is which is what I did. And I remember somebody coming to me and saying, "Well, we ought to make a program about uh, you know one of these programs about an airport." 
And I said, no, it would never work. It would never <laughs> work. And, uh, of course, um, the BBC did airport, and that, that ran for about um, 10 years as well. Yeah, and, I mean, so working in television, do you get people approaching you, you know, you know maybe you're at a dinner party and you, you, you say what you do. Do they, they come up with their ideas? Do they, they throw their ideas at you? Uh, yes, yeah, that does happen. That does happen. But you can sometimes meet people, and uh, an idea comes up, and... And it gives you six months' work. I mean, it really does, it, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a good film at the end of it. I remember I was having my hair cut once, and the um, the woman who was cutting my hair said, I've been reading this really interesting book. You ought to have a look at it. It's about a forced marriage in the Yemen. Well, three months yet later, I was in the Yemen uh, f- following up on that story. Uh, so some, some things, you know, really work out, but some things uh, don't. And sometimes, you know, there are programs I would love to have made uh, which uh, nobody wanted, so I never got to make them. But uh, So there are ups and downs all the time. And what can you see, or what would you like to see, perhaps, as the, as the future of Tibet? Can you see, is, is there hope? It's very hard now to look at Tibet and see that anything is going to improve. Uh, there's a particular crackdown at the moment, and uh, there are these self-immolations. Uh, the, there are Tibetan people in Tibet setting fire to themselves. I think there have been 30 in the last uh, 18 months. Uh, it is terrifying. Um, they do it because there's nothing else to do. They are, there's no other way they have to protest against, against their treatment. Um, and uh, the, the good thing that actually happened recently is that uh, our prime minister saw the Dalai Lama, which has caused a bit of trouble between our government and the Chinese government, but uh, he, was the, he was right to do that. I think what may happen in the future as as China gets uh, uh, richer, even richer, is that um, the young people want greater education and they will go abroad and they'll see how people live in other countries with greater freedom and they will become aware of what the situation is in Tibet at the moment. If you read the, the newspapers in Beijing about what happens in Tibet, you'd think it was the most glorious country you've ever been to because the... They don't have a free press, and uh, uh, their press tells desperate lies about uh, Tibet. But I think uh, I think things uh, inevitably will will improve. But I think it'll take an awful long time. And what's next for you? Obviously, you're you're promoting the book wherever possible. What's uh, what's the next project? Uh, I, I, actually, it's a very good question. <laughs> um, somebody said I should do the story of the boys when they come to England, and that's there is a bit of darkness there. There are some difficulties there, and. Uh, uh, but everything is coming right in the end. But it, it's, it would be a different kind of book, um, and we'll have to see how this one does. But I am, because I've decided in the end to publish it myself, uh, because I wanted it published, I wanted it f- in full colour, so I decided that uh, I would do it that way. Um, any um, publisher that I approached said, oh, no, it's, it's too expensive, but I thought it was worth it. And I've also... I'm going to. I'm selling it for under ten pounds, nine pounds ninety nine, because I just want the story to get out. I think the story is good enough to be read by a lot of people, not just people uh, of um, uh, grown up people, but people of uh, Tenzin's age uh, upwards. And um, uh, you can buy the the book through the the website which I've set up called www.escapefromtibet.org and a percentage of the profits will go to charities supporting Tibetan refugees.
Nick, great. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Hi, I'm Richard Herring. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham. Hi, this is Mark Kermo. This is Tony Hawkes. This is Karen Maitland. This is Brandon Cleary. And you're listening to The Reading Room. The Reading Room. The Reading Room. On Siren 107.3 FM. I tick. I was squeezing the wine box when you called in a kind of outtick from my cool existence. And I'd stamped on it, squished it about, and thought of Adrian's advice, just cut the corner with some scissors and let it slop. So I was relieved it was nothing serious you wanted to talk about, not like anybody'd died, not like any horse was running, or you just wanted to hear the sound of my voice, as if for the first time. Outtake by the eternally charismatic Brendan Cleary. And now it's time for The Musings of a Muddled Mind by Jamie Mackay. The new rules of Facebook. No one is allowed to post any more pictures of funny cats with captions. If you want to look at a funny cat, you'll have to find an actual cat doing something funny, or persuade him to do something funny, possibly with a promise of some tuna, or get him some stick-on thumbs. No more use of the letters LOL. It's not a word. If it's funny, say it's funny, or type ha 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 at least. The letters LOL are only allowed if using words like lollipop, lolloping, or lollapalooza. Don't type anything unless you are sure it's more interesting than watching a toilet flush. Admittedly, one man's Keats is another man's Peter Andre, but unless you would happily have it etched on your gravestone as the one thing people remember you for, don't type it. From now on, nobody is allowed to tell the world what day of the week it is. Mondays on Facebook have turned into an endless stream of the same words. I can't believe it's Monday. I hate Mondays. Where did the weekend go? Over and over and over, like an internet with Alzheimer's. Similarly, when it's Friday, even someone that's favourite film is Home Alone 3 will have managed to figure out that yes, it is indeed Friday, so we don't need 89 lines of thank God or Friday or Friday yay. Be more specific. If you're feeling angry, upset, happy or sad, don't just type Dave is really mad now or Sally is so angry now as your status update. If you don't tell us why, we will assume that you are the biggest drama queen since Christian from EastEnders stole Elton John's favourite cushion when they watched a gliathon and are attention-seeking at a high level not seen since Jessie J when she sings along to songs on The Voice. Holiday photos. Before posting 435 photos of your trip to Spain, ask yourself this. If my friends were at my house now, would they want to sit through each and every one of those photos? If the answer to this is no, then don't post them. If the answer to this question is yes, then ask yourself why none of your friends come to your house anymore, and don't post them. If any of these rules are broken, even once, then you will be instantly banned, then arrested, then imprisoned, and sent back to MySpace for 200 years. Thanks for listening to The Reading Room. On our next programme, we'll be presenting Cromwell's Talking Head, a special dramatised monologue from writer and performer Gareth Calway. What are you shivering for, Master Burglar? I'm little more than skin and bone these days. I'm not going to eat you. Much. I can't. A crowd kicked my teeth out in 1661, just after they chopped my head off. I am not giving you the evils. I can't. A flock of Westminster Hall crows pecked my eyes out in 1661. Not my idea of heaven. Spiked on a 20-foot oak pole on top of a roof for 25 years with a splitting headache. Oh, you think that's fair, do you? For killing the poor old king? Shall I tell you what the king did to poor fenmen like you? He stole their fields. 
And when they had to steal to feed their families, he chopped their ears off. What about a caution? That was the caution. So be sure not to miss that, but in the meantime, for more information about The Reading Room, check our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Thank you.